You are listening to the Addiction Support Podcast, episode number 38. Hi, Oak Creek Wellness family. Welcome to Addiction Support Podcast, where I talk with inspiring people who share their knowledge and experience of addiction and what's working for them. This is addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. I'm your host, Melissa Sue Tucker. Welcome back, guys. I'm really excited that you are here because I have some fun news. If you remember Dr. Dean Robb, who was on the podcast back in episode 35, he has graciously and excitedly agreed. I don't even know if that's the right way to say that. He's agreed to work with me over the next few weeks, and we are putting together a series of stuff that he goes over and talks that he gives. So we're going to be taking a deeper dive into his message. And I'm really excited about that because as you know, if you've been with me for a while, I've yet to do anything quite like this where it's so planned out. Typically when I'm doing the podcast, I'm just going along and whatever inspiration strikes, or sometimes people send me newspaper clippings and you know, sometimes I'll get an email. There's different ways that I decide on what the podcast is going to be about. And I let, you know, I'm a very spiritual person, so I let spirit guide me and I trust that. But I really like Dr. Rob's message really resonates with me. I feel you know, and I know there's a lot of um, different people that have different ways of approaching addiction and recovery. And here's what I'm going to say before I even get off on that tangent. If you disagree with me, start something massive. And if you agree with me, start something massive. Like, I don't care if you agree with me or not. We are on the same page, which is letting, you know, spreading the message that people can be healthy and whole and that they are important and they're valuable. And, we need everybody in society. Uh, there are no throwaways. There are no people that like, just because they're addicts, they get to be legalized slaves. That that doesn't exist in my world. So we can agree or we can disagree on the method to get there. Hey, you know, if you disagree, stand up and shout something louder, please. The world needs you. So with Dr. Dean, I'm going to give you guys, we're going to be doing a series of six podcasts. So those will be coming out probably the end of this month throughout October and then into November. He's also agreed that we're going to be doing a video recording of these two, which is something I haven't done before. Normally my podcasts are just done on audio. I don't know what that's going to look like for you yet. I don't know if I'm going to be able to have video ready to go as soon as the podcast is released or after the fact, but I'm really excited about this collaboration. So some of the topics that we're going to be going over, and keep in mind, this impacts everyone. I know that Sometimes we think, oh, well, I don't have addiction, so this doesn't relate to me. I think it does. I think that somebody on the podcast, I don't remember who it was, said that codependency is the biggest addiction there is. And I know that a lot of us are in recovery from codependency, even if there isn't a chemical dependency going on. So I think that this information is really valuable, even though the podcast focuses on friends and family and Dr. Dean focuses on uh, people in recovery. I think it's transferable, relatable, and necessary. So we're going to be talking about realizing your potential in recovery, discovering your inner gold, doing the work, what is emotional sobriety, how is it achieved, maintained, what are the key issues and pitfalls, renewal, hitting a new bottom, and starting over, what is codependence, what are its symptoms, where does it come from, and how can it be overcome, 
and developing mature, healthy, balanced relationships in recovery. Super excited. I wanted to give you guys a preview of what's coming. If you are someone that is working in this area and you have a series of topics that you'd like to come on and collaborate with me about, let me know. I'm on Twitter at Melissa S. Tucker. Make a note in the comments of the show notes. All you have to do is be signed in with your Facebook. You can email me, Melissa at oakcreekwellness.com. I'm here and I would love to collaborate and start something fun for the new year as well. So let me know. And before we jump into this week's episode, I'm going to read you two quotes that I personally love. The first one is by Martin Neumuller, and it's titled, First They Came for the Socialists. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I think that you'll get why I wanted to read that one as I get into this next part of the podcast. But first, I want to also read for you Margaret Mead's quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And now I'm going to get right into this piece that I read this morning, woke up about 7 a.m. and read it and I was crying. So I thought that I would share it with you because it's something that we need to be aware of and come together on. In America's drug death capital, how heroin is scarring the next generation. The story is by Wayne Drash and Mark Blau of CNN. And it was created on September 16th, actually updated at September 16th, 2016, Huntington, West Virginia. Sarah Murray tends to two dozen babies in the neonatal therapeutic unit at Cabell Huntington Hospital. They shake, they vomit, they're inconsolable, high-pitched screams, pierce the air. The symptoms can last for hours, days, or months. Graceful and soft-spoken, Murray is a seasoned nurse, tirelessly defending the innocent, but even she gets worn down. On difficult days, she seeks a moment of refuge behind her desk and wonders, how did we get here? These babies, her babies, are the youngest, most vulnerable victims of a raging epidemic. They are heroin babies, born addicted. Her third floor unit, a calm and quiet space with dim lighting, is meant to accommodate 12 babies, but it's been two years since the numbers were that low. One in 10 born in the hospital endures withdrawal from some type of drug. Heroin, opioids, cocaine, alcohol, or a combination of many. That's about 15 times the national average. The figures reflect a startling reality about this Appalachian town of 49,000 on the banks of the Ohio River. One in four residents here is hooked on heroin or some other opioid, local health officials say. That's a staggering 12,000 people dealing with opioid addiction in a state with the highest rate of drug overdose deaths in the nation. Sorry, I'm a little tongue-tied. The truth is nearly everyone in Huntington is a victim of the epidemic. Parents whose children lie about their habits and steal from their homes. Fathers and mothers who outlive their daughters and sons. Most devastatingly is the impact on the youngest generation growing up with this toxicity. Children who witness their parents descent into a living hell or are abandoned or born addicted. It's frustrating, it's sad, and it's heart-wrenching, says Murray, a nurse for the last 26 years. My personal passion is for the baby and that they have a voice. On this day, August 15th, 
Marie and her staff of eight nurses are particularly concerned about one baby boy. The mother won't reveal the name of the dope she's on, which makes it unnerving for the nurses trying to treat him. Most of the infant's parents are absent, and the possibility that they are somewhere shooting up lingers like the baby's screams. The first overdose. It's about 3.30 p.m., the heat is nearing triple digits when Lieutenant David McClure pulls his blue-striped ambulance SUV to a crash near the West Huntington Bridge. First on the scene, the senior paramedic with Cabell County EMS finds a compact car stuck on a curb in the medium. The hum of the engine grows louder as he walks towards the vehicle. Through a rolled-down window, McClure sees a 21-year-old woman hunched toward the steering wheel. Her chin touches her chest. Drool dribbles out of her mouth. Her breaths are few and far between. Can you hear me? He yells near her face. Can you hear me? After shifting the car into park, McClure lifts her eyelids and shines a pen light into her pupils, both of the size of pinpoints, a sure sign of an opioid overdose. When he looks down, he spots a syringe in her lap. McClure has grown accustomed to drug overdoses. His crew responds daily to such calls. You name it, he's seen it. Moms passed out with their kids still seatbelted. Dads sprawled on floors, their toddlers within an arm's reach of heroin. Never once has a heroin user thanked McClure for saving his or her life. Sometimes they complain about the interruption of their high. With minutes left to save the woman on the bridge, another paramedic sets up a bag valve mask to squeeze air into her lungs. Together, he and McClure place her on a stretcher and roll her towards the ambulance. They search her left arm for a decent vein, and after finding an unscarred one, pierce her skin with a needle containing an opioid blocker called naloxone, the drug known for reversing overdoses, can save heroin users on the brink of death. Within two minutes, she blinks her eyes, wincing with discomfort from the stark lights in the back of the ambulance. Outside the window, a Cabell Huntington Hospital billboard towers over the crash scene with a foreboding offer, no appointment necessary. By the time she's transported there for treatment, the next message from dispatch reverberates across town. They're just showing up and dying. All hell broke loose. Tragedy has defined this town before. In November 1970, a plane carrying members of Huntington's beloved Marshall University football team smashed into a mountainside killing 75 players, coaches, and supporters. The term before the crash and after the crash became part of the town's legacy. The movie We Are Marshall captured Huntington's spirit in the crash's aftermath as the community came together and healed. Today, Huntington must rally against a very different and relentless foe. Heroin use has grown so prevalent that a new catchphrase has emerged, Narcan. The brand name for the opioid blocker that reverses overdoses, as in, how many times have you been narcan It's not uncommon to hear an addict say three, four, or five times. A new number will emerge from this day. 28 overdoses in a five-hour span. The ordeal will stretch every resource in Huntington, clogging the emergency rooms in the town's two hospitals, testing the resolve of the most hardened medics, and prompting a manhunt for a peddler of a batch of heroin laced with an unknown substance. The victims' ages will range from 19 to 59. They'll turn up in homes and alleys, a marathon convenience store bathroom, and a Burger King parking lot. They'll include a father and son shooting up together, a husband and wife, a recovering addict who relapses. It's the moment all hell broke loose, Huntington Mayor Steve Williams will later say. 
The moment everyone knew was coming. The moment no one knew how to stop. Nine overdoses within minutes. Captain Derek Ray with Cabell County EMS gets out of his ambulance at the showing up and dying scene. Authorities treat it like a mass casualty event. Ambulances, police cars, and fire trucks line Sycamore Street. Local TV crews set up, too. Cameras rolling. It's shortly after 3.30 p.m. Ray knows the neighborhood well. He's responded to calls there many times. Residents here tend to curse him, then ask for his help when their lives need saving. Today is one of those days. A police officer enters a small ranch house and injects naloxone into the thighs of two users who appear dead. Both revive. Two others are groggy, but not so far gone that they need to be narcaned. Ray heads next door to a tiny, low-income apartment complex. In a shady, narrow courtyard, he finds three women, ages 23, 27, and 32. Two lay unconscious in the grass. The third crawls on the ground with her arms raised like a zombie from The Walking Dead. Acting fast, paramedics pump oxygen into the victim's lungs and administer naloxone to all three. A supervisor with two decades of experience and doughboy looks, Ray catches his breath when his phone rings. It's McClure, who has finished treating the woman who crashed her car on the bridge. He wants guidance. Where should he go next? In just 20 minutes since the first call, emergency crews have treated eight overdose victims. The day is far from over. Dispatch relays yet another emergency. McClure points his ambulance to a pink cinder block apartment building off Jefferson Avenue. McClure came to Huntington six years ago from an Ohio town of nearly 2,000. The pace was so slow in his home county that he handled only five medical calls a day. He admits he wasn't prepared for this, but he's adjusted. Still, he worries about the day someone has a heart attack and dies because the medics are all dealing with overdoses. McClure hustles up a flight of stairs to a second floor unit. Two women guide him into the bathroom where two men, a 47-year-old father, tall and slender, and his 26-year-old son, lie unconscious after using what a a relative says was a $20 dose of heroin. The dad is in the bathtub where the women have tried to revive him. The water is still running. Across from the toilet, McClure spots the son slumped against the wall. McClure makes rapid-fire assessments. Are they breathing? Do they have a pulse? Can they be saved? The women scream. McClure instructs them to leave the room. If the men are dead, he doesn't want anyone to see what comes next. There's no use in yelling at the two unconscious men. He knows they won't respond to his voice. The son is breathing ever so slightly at a rate of two breaths per minute. But the dad isn't. His face is turning blue. McClure bags both of them, both men, to get air in the lungs and sprays naloxone up their noses. Because he's alone, McClure has no time to search for veins. Two more saves. The Mayor's Nightmare. Huntington Mayor Steve Williams snaps awake to the sound of a deluge of text messages. The 60-year-old politician returned home from a vacation and hoped to squeeze in a power nap this afternoon, but a real-life nightmare disrupts his slumber. Williams stares at his iPhone. Heroin overdoses have occurred in almost every location imaginable. Dining rooms and driver's seats, parking lots, and in the arms of paramedics. No place is safe. Nowhere is sacred. Has heroin laced with fentanyl, the painkiller, at least 50 times more potent than morphine arrived? What about carfentanil, the elephant tranquilizer, up to 100 times more potent than fentanyl? Over the past year, Williams has read about both spreading across the country. While fielding his texts, he silently prays for Huntington.
The mayor knows rebirth can emerge in the wake of destruction. He moved to the town two years after the 1970 plane crash and played for the young, thundering herd squad that rebuilt Marshall football. The teams were awful in those days, but they represented something more important than winning. They provided the community with a rallying cry in the face of despair. But recent decades have been unkind at Huntington. Factories that made supplies for West Virginia's coal mines shuttered. Jobs grew scarce. From 1970 to 2010, the town lost more than 25,000 residents. Block after block of one beautiful two-story craftsman homes have been fallen into despair. The porches leaning, paint peeling from the clapboard siding, and beware of dog signs peering from broken windows. Drugs arrived here in the form of crack towards the end of the 1980s. Then came prescription pills. In a town with a median household income of 28,673, where nearly one in three live in poverty, heroin has flourished over the past decade, particularly as officials cracked down on pill mills and supplies dried up. The heroin, officials say, made its way from Mexico's coastline to the Midwestern heartland to the Appalachian Mountains. By 2013, the year Williams became mayor, opioid abuse had spiraled so far out of control that Cabalas County fatal heroin overdose rate rose to nearly 13 times the national average. Officials have responded with a series of progressive policy initiatives, from a needle exchange program to help curb hepatitis outbreaks to landing a donation of 2,200 naloxone auto injectors worth $1.5 million to be given away to residents. Williams also took the unprecedented step for such a small town of appointing a drug czar responsible for getting everyone, paramedics and pastors, judges and jailers, cops and community leaders, on the same page to combat the opioid epidemic. Unlike other drugs that came to West Virginia, Williams says, heroin doesn't discriminate, affecting both men and women, white and black, homeless and lawyers, grandchildren as young as 12, and the grandparents approaching 80. The mayor never knows who might overdose, so he carries an aloxin injector everywhere he goes. On days like today, the priorities shift from running heroin out of town to saving lives. The mayor hopes residents can be spared the coffin. God's star in heaven. It's been nearly a decade since Teddy Johnson buried his 22-year-old son. The news of the overdose outbreak hits hard, but he's not surprised given heroin's takeover. Why is the problem only worsened? The 65-year-old father has warned off the scrounge of the last nine years, long before heroin reached historic levels in Huntington. He stared down his son's dealer in court and an undocumented immigrant connected to the Mexican cartel responsible for distributing black tar heroin in the region. Neither dared return his glare. Every week, Johnson visits his son's gravestone in Spring Hill Cemetery. He trims the grass with a hedge clipper and a weed whacker. He polishes the stone with a rag and granite cleaner. He outlines the engraved letters of his son's name with a black sharpie. Then he steps back and takes a look at the inscription. Adam Tyler Johnson, our star on earth, God's star in heaven. The father runs a plumbing shop founded by his grandfather 78 years ago. He's expanded the business to make showcase bathrooms, designer kitchens, and dynamic outdoor patios. Adam, who is a history major at Marshall University, was in line to become the fourth generation to carry on the family business. Instead, visitors to the showroom are greeted by memorials to Adam. Police chief, find the heroine.
Shortly before 4 p.m., Captain Rocky Johnson, commander of the Huntington Police Department's Special Investigations Unit, prepares to lead a drug raid at Markham Terrace, a cluster of two-story red-brick public housing units that dot a hill on the city's east side. The neighborhood is home to the town's poorest folks, a place where fistfights get posted on YouTube and scores are settled with knives. A preacher says baby shoes hanging from the telephone wires indicate drop-off sites for drug dealers. The complex is within a stone's throw of where the first responders earlier treated seven overdoses. Johnson's phone ring. It's the chief, Joe Cicerelli. Are you monitoring the radio traffic, Cicerelli asks? We're having all these overdoses. When Cicerelli joined the force in 1978, Huntington only had about a dozen known heroin addicts. Officers chased after those few users and monitored parking lots for people smoking weed. Now the addicts have multiplied. Though the drug has origins of south of the border, the chief says that the dealers are so far down the chain, they can't spell Mexico. He orders Johnson to abandon the raid. There's a new assignment. Find the source of today's heroin. Dressed in jeans and t-shirts, Johnson and his nine undercover officers break cover and shift gears. If the spread of this particular batch isn't reined in quickly, dead bodies will be found all over Huntington. Johnson and his officers began conducting interviews. They're told an out-of-towner, a man about six feet, four inches, and built like a middle linebacker, cruised through the neighborhood about an hour before the first overdose occurred. His, na- his nickname was Benz, though he drove a Chevy Cruze. Some residents say he handle- handed out free samples. Others say he sold a new product. When he stopped and took a stroll, witnesses tell police scores of people followed. It was like he was the Pied Piper. A mother needs her fix. Andrea has followed the lure of the high for a decade now. She shoots up twice a day, regardless of cost. Addiction has robbed her of her job, friends, family. She agrees to be interviewed and photographed on the condition that her last name be withheld. She says paranetics saved her life twice. She sought, she sought refuge in rehab once, attending a 30-day treatment center. She stayed clean for more than eight months, 264 days to be exact. She shook her habit but kept her friends, staying in a circle that led to relapse. The 36-year-old former nurse says her three children, ages 18, 14, and 11, live with her grandmother. Her own mother and father refuse to speak to her. Her oldest son, she says, hates her. Her daughter, the youngest of the bunch, found her on the bathroom floor two years ago. The girl cries and prays for her mother. In spite of today's overdoses, Andrea chases her fix and chooses to shoot up anyway. Prayers be damned. Never again. The devil has come to Huntington, Sarah Murray says. It's as simple and as complicated as that. Newborns in the nurse's hospital ward weren't just exposed to heroin. The pregnant addicts have often downed alcohol, taken prescription painkillers, or dabbed with the latest fad, the anti-seizure drug, Neurontin. Most babies in the unit will likely suffer long-term neurological problems. Nearly 1 in 10 can expect to suffer from hepatitis C in their lifetime. When babies are born with drugs in their system, state child protection workers are notified. Murray recalls one shattering case where doctors and nurses believed a fussy baby boy would be in danger if sent home to his parents. She says they shared notes with child protection services about the family's behavior and pleaded on the child's behalf. Murray rarely knows the outcome when a child leaves her care, but this time the case made headlines in the local paper. 
the father was arrested, accused of killing the boy. She and her fellow nurse, Rhonda Edmonds, made a pledge that this will never happen on our watch again. They lobbied the hospital to open a neonatal therapeutic unit. As heroin use climbed, so did the number of babies suffering from withdrawal. Their fussiness disturbed the care of others in the neonatal intensive care unit. The therapeutic unit opened a year later. The two continued their dedication by opening a separate facility called Lily's Place to provide a homier environment for the babies exposed to drugs before uh, the drug use before birth. Each newborn has a separate room, and young mothers are taught skills for dealing with their babies. Most of the moms want to learn. Some do not. Nearly all of the children sent home with a, are sent home with a parent. Most of the time, it's their birth mom or dad. Once in a while, they go to foster care or are put up for adoption, but that's a rarity. One mother confided to Murray that she finally got help when her child was four months old, and she couldn't recall if she fed the baby at all one day. The mother asked a relative to care for the child, and she went into treatment. Murray worries about the addicts who don't feed their babies and don't call someone for help. She empathizes with their chemical dependency, but says it's difficult to hear patients prioritize their fix over the family with a simple justification. I like being high. We have a generational addiction, and that's their normal. It was their mother's normal. It was their grandmother's normal, Marie says, and now it's their normal. A normalcy that is completely abnormal. Sorry, that one chokes me up. You guys, <sighs> overdoses everywhere. Lieutenant McClure marches up the footpath and cuts through a brush behind Markham Terrace. The next victim is splayed out beneath a hollowed out area of bushes amid needles and a heap of sticks and water bottles piled up like a campfire. Time for naloxone. Less than 20 feet away on the other side of the path, Captain Ray comes across an overdosed man lying on a bed of brush, another life saved. Sweat drips from beneath the bill of Ray's brown EMS baseball cap. The oppressive heat won't let up, neither will the overdoses. A commotion erupts outside an apartment. People scream for a medic. As Ray makes his way down the narrow sidewalk, distrustful bystanders pull out cell phones and record his every move. He can't let the cameras face him. Another man is down, clutching groceries in one hand and a bag of needles in the other. The overdose count nears 20. They can't unring the bell. It's nearly 5 p.m., closing time at the Carbell County Courthouse, as family court judge Patricia A. Keller wraps up another day of child support cases. Within the hour, the 58-year-old West Virginia native is home and flipping on the news in her living room. She stands there in shock, unable to focus on preparing dinner. How many overdose victims are parents, she wonder. Will those families fracture? Keller never thought drugs would consume her court. Fifteen years ago, she was mostly settling visitation schedules for alcoholic dads. Now at least a third of the cases she sees involve protecting children from the havoc wreaked by opioid addiction. Every week, Keller decides whether moms and dads who have lost custody, like the ones at Lily's Place, can see their children again. Whenever possible, she prefers to create avenues for heroin users, including mothers like Andrea, to regain visitation rights. First, they must typically meet with a counselor and submit to random drug tests. Far too often, addicts are, are not willing participants. In some cases, parents show up high to her cha chambers. 
if they show up at all. Sadly, some parents lose their children for good. When people have been in the madness of their addiction, being a good parent is the last thing on their minds, Keller said. When they start to become clean, they can't unring the bell. Likewise, Keller never thought her job would also mean being a counselor, but she can't ignore the fact that three out of every four parents in her court are so poor they can't afford a lawyer. She encourages dads struggling with heroin addiction to get clean needles at the exchange. Other times, she's offered moms literature about recovery programs. Keller also presides over a local drug court that's one of West Virginia's largest. Founded in 2008, it gives nonviolent criminals with a high risk of reoffending or relapsing a chance at treatment instead of incarceration. Half of the participants drop out, leading them back to prison. For the other half who graduate, 9 out of 10 don't commit another crime, Keller says. But the drug court has limitations. Addicts can only get help once they're in the criminal justice system, a point where families have already suffered the consequences. For those who want assistance before that point, it can be hard to find. A lot of people want to get help, Keller says, but we don't have enough treatment beds. It's so frustrating. We've got to get it for them as soon as they're ready. Resurrected in recovery. While the 6 o'clock news airs, Will Lockwood sits in a crowd of about 70 at the Expression Church of Huntington, a refuge for recovering addicts sandwiched between Cabell Huntington Hospital's emergency room and Spring Hill Cemetery. Tim Hazelton, an administrator with the county's health department, takes the stage and acknowledges the string of overdose that have occurred this afternoon. Then he uses the pulpit as a teachable moment. The people who are overdosing, he says, are in need of help. Put out the word, he tells the crowd. There's a batch of heroin laced with something that can kill you, so stay away from it. He dives into a PowerPoint presentation, 37 slides in total, that describe how to recognize the signs and symptoms of an overdose, how to administer an intranasal form of naloxone, and what to do if a child overdoses. Lockwood, who helped organize this session, relates to every word. The 25-year-old overdosed four times in a three-year period. He stayed clean for nearly two. Two summers ago, he embarked on a mission to end his life by the means of a lethal fix. He holed up in room number 216 of the Coaches Inn, a dingy pink motel where passerbyers can see walking skeletons stumble from room to room. Lockwood overdosed for what he would hope would be the last time. When he awoke, his drug dealer pounded on his chest in the bathtub, cold water running in his face. He stood up, and as he came to his senses, glanced at his reflection in the mirror. His bodybuilder frame had withered by more than 60 pounds. You are worth more than this, he told himself. You have a son. You have a family. You know exactly what you need to do. Now Lockwood works as a peer coach for the Lifehouse, a faith-based recovery center that helped him get sober. As part of his job, he mentors men who are desperately trying to quit. I empathize with the people of this community, he says. A lot of them don't want to be in this situation. Truly, what it boils down to is fear. Fear of rejection, fear of judgment. Tonight, everyone learns the value of life-saving intervention. When the naloxone course ends, worship begins. Lockwood and the rest of the congregation proclaim their commitment to God, to one another, and to themselves. Many of the fellow worshipers have skirted death, in biblical terms, resurrected. The fallout. Just blocks away as the church service continues, a man stiffens in the bathroom at the Marathon convenience store. His legs, contorted, stick up straight in the air. His pupils are dilated. A woman lies sprawled on the floor beneath the sink. 
This is one of Lieutenant McClure's final stops, almost exactly 12 hours into the shift that began at 7 a.m. His clothes are drenched in sweat and the stench of a hard day's work. Two more get Narcanned. Almost two hours later, as darkness falls, Mayor Williams' phone buzzes once again. He swipes his screen. It's an update from Huntington's fire chief, Carl Eastman. The victim of the final overdose, a 19-year-old woman just outside the city limits, has made it alive to Cabell Huntington Hospital. There have been no OD deaths that we can find at either hospital, Ethan text a few minutes before 9 p.m. Thank heaven for that, the mayor replies before firing off another text. Obviously, carfentanil has arrived. The overdose count stands at 26. None are fatal. A handful of victims refused a ride to the city's two hospitals. Everyone taken to the facilities, authorities say, declined offers of long-term treatment that day. Lieutenant McClure ends his shift, exhausted but thankful no other major emergencies arose during the hectic five hours. Judge Keller, after spending the evening worried about the victims, goes to be grateful the men and women enrolled in her drug court program have been spared. Rocky Johnson, head of the Special Investigations Unit, tells his officers to mentally prepare for the next day and the likelihood of finding dead heroin users, people who shot up alone. At Sarah Murray's neonatal unit and at Lily's place, 36 heroin babies live to see another day. The nurse and her staff work late into the evening, feverishly making calls to find the mothers and fathers of the babies in their care. Murray is nearly 14 hours into her day when word comes that none of the parents have overdosed. A wave of relief washes over her. It's a minor victory in a war where there are few. And then the epilogue. A day later, Chief Cicerelli confirms a man who died of a cardiac arrest at St. Mary's Hospital on August 15th had heroin in his system. The time of death makes him the first fatality, rising the overdose count to 27. Lieutenant McClure Narcan's one of the overdose victims again three days later. On August 20th, Elena Perry, a 76-year-old mother from Wayne County, the rural countryside where Marshall University plane crashed in 1970, lays her 54-year-old son to rest. Billy Joe Farmer was found on August 18th, three days after authorities say he died. He was seven months into a long-term recovery program. He was the father of two. Huntington's final tally for the five-hour window, 28, with two fatalities. After pulling surveillance footage of a man matching the description of the Pied Piper, police worked with multiple agencies to arrest Bruce Lamar Griggs, a 22-year-old man from Akron, Ohio. Griggs faces federal drug cha uh, charges for his alleged role in distributing heroin in Huntington on August 15th. The drug continues to torment Huntington. Paramedics have plowed forward at a blistering pace of more than seven saves a day. In one case, a mother lost custody for toddler after overdosing with the kid in the car. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Support Podcast. Addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. www.addictionsupportpodcast.com.